Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where the host analyze, discuss, and disseminate history, philosophy, mythology, and how they intersect into our popular storytelling. As always, I am incredibly, indubitably, outrageously excited to be here today for a whole host of reasons, but mainly that we're going to continue the conversation that we started uh, actually the previous like month or so. We're going to stay in the realm of Westeros, and we are proud to present a new format to our Game of Thrones discussion. Today is not going to be a character case study. Today is going to be a Game of Thrones relationship case study. So what does that mean, folks? We are going to be discussing two characters and the relationship to each other and how that relationship has formed these characters and trace what these archetypes are and what their philosophical implications are. So what two characters will we be discussing on this week's Midnight Myth? Drum roll, please. We will be discussing the Kingslayer, Jamie Lannister and Brienne of Tarth. It's awesome that we're going to be able to do this new format, this relationship study of these two characters. And I think the reason that we landed on doing this was because both of these characters were fascinating people that we wanted to explore. But every time we tried to build an episode around them, they came back to each other. And there's no relationship in Game of Thrones, I think, that is so deeply entwined when it comes to character than these two. They make each other who they are, even though they don't meet until well in their uh, well through in their lives. And without their meeting, they wouldn't be who they are today. So I'm very excited to talk about how they come together, how they break apart, how they come together again, and so on and so forth, and what they mean to each other. Yeah, we actually had a completely different idea for this week, having nothing to do with Game of Thrones. But we found ourselves 
reflecting on our previous episodes, wanting to dive into Jamie. And as we were discussing Jamie, we realized that you can't uncouple Jamie with Brienne. And at the same time, we've been wanting to do a Brienne case study for a long time now. So if you guys like this format, let us know. We can do more relationship studies. If you've heard our other Game of Thrones case studies, we focus primarily on the show. So spoiler wall for all Game of Thrones is now officially up. We will spoil it. And the idea is we're going to dive deep into a character, what they mean, what they've been through, and where Martin may be drawing his inspiration when writing them. And then the broader philosophical, ethical, and political considerations. Right. With the twist here, it's going to focus primarily on how these two characters relate. So if you like it, guys, hit us up, let us know. We'll be happy to hear from you. And Laurel, if people do want to tell us what they think, if they want to reach out to us, if they want to dialogue with us post episode, how can they do it? Best place is Twitter. Hit us up at the midnight myth, or we're also on Facebook and Instagram at midnight myth podcast. You can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com and drop us a line on the contact form there. There's also extra blog content. If you want to dive a little bit deeper that we're updating regularly. Uh, and then if you're liking what you hear, if you enjoy the show, please head over to your favorite podcast listening app and subscribe if you haven't yet. And please leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, because it really helps us get out there. And another thing, a lot of people have been hitting us up asking us, where do we get our inspiration from? What are our sources? So we've decided to partner with Amazon. And if you find us on the website, www.midnightmyth.com, you're going to find links to our sources where if you want to read what we're reading, you want to watch what we're watching, you can purchase them through our Amazon affiliate. And if you do that, guys, it's going to help us out by giving us a little bit of money. And I know it's a podcast, it's a free format, so enjoy it. But it does cost money to produce, so it'd be cool if you guys bought something to, you know, just recoup some of what we sink in. Just pennies in our pocket, and we do appreciate your support. So thanks for listening, and let's jump in. And just so you guys, if you haven't noticed already, I am fighting a cold this week, so that's my why my voice sounds a little bit weird, but I definitely wanted to be here and do this uh, episode for you, so bear with me. We were going to take the week off, but then Laurel insisted on getting like, through the cold. Please, please let me do this Jamie and Brienne episode. To begin with, I have two central theses around Jamie and Brienne, in particular how it relates to the characters in the show. So thesis number one is that Martin and the show are playing with two different moral poles and two different moral outlooks, one in which Brienne can be characterized as two things, idealistic and optimistic, and where Jamie can be regarded as cynical and pessimistic. Yeah, I think that's a great way to start summing them up. And then I would say that if I were to put big philosophical tense on what they represent, in particular how it pertains to moral thinking, we have Jamie, which is existentialism, and we have Brienne, which is deontologicalism. Okay. I don't think deontologicalism is a Deontology. Word. Deontology. Yeah. To break down these big complex ideas, deontology believes and is the study of morality, ethics. How do we know what we do is right and what is the best way for us to live a happy life? 
and it is about following rules. There are right. rules by which you follow, and if you follow the rules, you will be an ethical and moral person, and you'll be happy. Existentialism is a more modern type of philosophy, and in the simplest, nutshelly form, it's about individuals and their freedom to choose. So if an individual makes a choice and that is the only real true morality that you can in, you can count on. Um, can I give a specific example about existentialism? Because sure. we've talked about deontology at length in the podcast. But I'd like to back up to a little man named Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, yes. He is a French philosopher. He wrote around the time of the Great World Wars. And he is one of the founding fathers, for lack of a better term, of existentialism. In a book of his called Existentialism and Human Emotions, he talks about the failure of every moral system to guide people in the toughest of circumstances, and he cites a specific example. Um, he, as a teacher, during World War II, encountered a student who asked him for advice. The student, his father had died fighting the Germans in World War I. His brother had died fighting the Germans in World War II in their invasion of France. So he felt a patriotic duty to avenge his father and his brother and to join with the French army and to go fight the Germans and repel them from the country. His problem, his dilemma therein, resided that his mother is now, has, having lost a son and a husband, is now grief-stricken and can barely take care of herself. So it's fallen upon him, Jean-Paul Sartre's student, to take care of the mother. And he goes to Jean-Paul Sartre and asks, which is the right choice? Do I defend my country and avenge the life of my father and brother against the French enemy, the Germans? Or do I stay with my mother and take care of her and nurse her through the grief? Because if he goes and he chose, choose, if he chooses option A, he was worried his mother may succumb to the grief and die. If he chooses option B, He's worried that the, his father and brother will never be avenged and that France itself may ultimately fall to the Germans. You can see his moral dilemma, to which Jean-Paul Sartre responds with one word, choose. Oh, boy. And he tells this story in this book, and then in this book, he illustrates every major moral system and how they really can't inform the decision of this student whether you're a Christian, which one is right? Whether you're a deontologist, what's the rule that you need to follow? Whether you're a utilitarian, what's the greater good? They all break down in actual pragmatic examples to really tell someone what to do so that they can live their happiest and most moral life. And how I relate this to Jamie and Brienne. Jamie tells a story in season four episode, the episode Kiss by Fire. That's season three. That's season three. Pardon me. Season three, the episode Kiss by Fire, where he has lost his hand. He has just gotten medical treatment. He's in Heron Hall and he goes and takes a bath. And he tells the story to Brienne of Tarth, confessing to her the day he killed King Eris and the choice that he made. To Sartre, when it comes to morality... We are all condemned to be free. There's no one to blame but ourselves for our choices, and we must live with the choices that we have made. 
And in our freedom, we are condemned. Jamie is condemned as the king's slayer because he made the choice to kill King Eris. And it is the defining moment of his life, even more so than his illicit incestuous uh, affair with his sister, even more so than the fact that he attempted to kill an 11-year-old boy in Bran and failed to do so and paralyzed him. This decision to be a Kingslayer has condemned him to be free for the rest of his life. I love this as a way to begin a conversation about Jamie and Brienne because it does come back to, I think, the key scene for their relationship, which is at the bathhouse in Harrenhal, which I think we'll spend some time on with this podcast. But by setting them up as these dual poles of this existentialism versus deontology uh, kind of spectrum, we get to see them in this new light. So Brienne as the uh, as the would-be knight, as the warrior maiden who adheres so strictly and believes so strongly in the code of chivalry she's been brought up to understand, who believes that by devoting yourself enough to something or to someone, you will do good things, and people who break those vows are bad people. She's not wrong, but Jamie, who has been let down by those vows, who has been let down by the rules who has proven time and again that the rules don't actually give you the right thing to do. In fact, they often just conflict with one another. Shows us that uh, the world is not that simple and shows us that you can still have uh, pure motives or good motives and do things that people consider to be bad. So they set us up in a very complicated atmosphere. And Jamie has a quote from season two when he is being held by Catelyn Stark, uh, that I think perfectly encapsulates his moral dilemma that echoes that existentialism in John Paul Sartre, where he says, quote, so many vows, they make you swear and swear, defend the king, obey the king, keep his secrets, do his bidding, your life for his, but obey your father, love your sister, protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws, it's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other. And that sets us up to realize that this character kind of had no way out. And even though he's been painted as a villain from episode one, and most of the things that we have seen him do are despicable and are disgraceful and we should condemn him for, we also need to look at the system that led him there. We need to look at the vows that painted him into a corner and try to see things from his perspective. And that's where these two characters truly come to need one another. Absolutely. <clears throat> and thank you for letting me start sort of in the middle. I'm glad that you backtracked a little oh, bit. Oh, no, I love it. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Brienne's tent. You know, so we've established okay, Jamie as, as his pole, as cynicism, as existential despair. Then we have Brienne of Tarth. So Brienne is a very intriguing character. One, she's gender non-conforming, which is not a term they'd use in the land of Westeros, but we in 2019 would say that she identifies with more masculine characteristics and more masculine types. Yes, exactly. She is not a conventional body type for a woman in that she is taller than most men. She is stronger than most men. 
we are introduced to her in the show at a tournament between her and and Sir Loris, who's already been established as one of the great knights and one of the great tournament knights in particular of the entire realm where she defeats him and then gets to join the King's Guard of Renly, who she is also very, very much in a type of love. I don't know if it's romantic or yeah, affectionate, but, but she, she has definitely deeply loves him. A deep connection and love. And we see Brienne as one of, A, the fiercest warriors. She defeats the Hound in single combat as well. Another great warrior. Time and time again, she's proven her mettle and she's proven her toughness. However, because she is a biological female, she will never be accepted as an actual knight. Correct, yeah. She's constantly in this roadblock where people demean her, people put her down. She, I don't know how many times in season two and three where Lord Bolton's men by lot are trying to rape her in some degree or they're throwing her in a bear pit, having her battle a bear with a blunt sword, despite watching her king get murdered by dark magic and herself being labeled a king slayer. Because when Renly is assassinated by Melisandre's magical spell, it is her who most people suspect and condemn. Despite all of the ridicule, shame, she never once wavers in her commitment to the basic tenements of chivalry. Which is remarkable, right? For someone to go through so much trauma, for someone to go through so many threats, for someone to constantly be painted as either you're not supposed to be here, you're an abomination, you're a monstrosity, or even the more, uh, you know, seemingly innocuous and yet still insidious insinuations that she's like the friend who hangs out and nobody really likes but wouldn't ever tell you, but there are, uh, you know, always at your side and kind of annoying. Like from all of those things that she has to deal with, for her to come through and still be uh, so bright-eyed and still have absolute faith in chivalry is extremely remarkable. Absolutely. And as soon as Renly is assassinated, she realizes that Catelyn Stark is another person of honor and of dignity and of someone that she can follow and she needs to have she does, yeah. Someone to follow. She needs to have someone to pledge her sword to. She needs to serve. Because it is immoral to be a warrior just for war. You can only be a warrior in defense of honor, in defense of serving the greater individual whose job it is to bring peace and tranquility to the realm. Her blade has a purpose. And that purpose is always within the confines of the moral rules. She is the deontological knight. She is chivalry in its most literal sense. And because of this, she is constantly optimistic despite all of the the reasons that she has to be cynical. And she's not naive. She's not foolishly optimistic. And temperamentally, she's not an optimistic person in the respect that like, you know, she knows life sucks. She knows. She says to Jamie when his hand is cut, you have some misfortune. Your first taste of misfortune of what regular people have. And here you are. You're acting like, a, and she says it, a woman. Yeah. 
And she's also cautious, right? As they're traveling through the countryside, she is very clearly always seeing the best and worst case scenarios of every possible fork in the road. When they come to that bridge, she's contemplating whether or not they can be seen from the bridge, whether or not they can cross the river. So she's certainly not naive. She is definitely someone who is constantly weighing the uh, the balance of her actions. But she does believe that that sword that she has pledged to a greater cause will lead her true. And it's ultimately led her to a avenge Renly and B be in the service of a Lord who truly deserves or a lady, pardon me, who truly deserves her in Sansa. Yeah. And it takes her a damn long time to get there. But when she does, it's, it's, and I'll expand on this a little bit later, but it's her Holy grail. Yes. And it actually brings her to Winterfell with Sansa and Arya having fulfilled her oath to Catelyn. And this is an important part that we have to reconcile with her optimism. It's rewarded in that both Arya and Sansa get back to Winterfell. Yeah. And Brienne has completed her quest. Her optimism and her faith in chivalry have been rewarded. I do think that Brienne shows us perhaps the most archetypical hero that Game of Thrones has to offer, even more than Jon Snow in many ways. Ooh, interesting. I just want to put this out there. Let's talk about it. Like we just talked about with her optimism versus naivete, how uh, clear-headed she is, how well she thinks out the strategies of every situation that she is in, but how purely she filters every decision through her uh, devotion and her emotions and her... uh, you know, steadfast belief in a code of honor, I think is really a a powerful way for someone to pass through this universe that is constantly punishing people for making even the smallest missteps. So like Rob Stark was set up to be an archetypical hero in the first season and the second season of Game of Thrones. As was Ned. Yeah, and Ned. And they made stupid mistakes and they lost their heads for it. Uh, And Jon Snow is a character who is constantly making stupid mistakes in the world of Westeros based on his steadfast adherence to his honor. And he got killed for it. He came back. But Brienne is also making those same kinds of decisions. She is, uh, she's adhering to her honor as strictly as these characters would, and yet she's not fucking up. So I think there's a lot to admire in there being a character who can pass through this world that is constantly testing your honor, constantly testing your chivalry and your honesty, and not fuck up. That's amazing. I'd like to add on top of that, because I completely agree with that. Another great lesson of Brienne, in my view, is not only does she not fuck up, don't ever give up. Brienne proves that there are no roadblocks other than your ironclad will. And she wills herself to become one of the greatest knights of Westeros in a world that will never give her the title knight. And that is so aspirational. And I just look at that and I feel like such a sense of gladness when this character succeeds and this character does well. You know, when I first got introduced to Brienne, it was in the books before the show came out. And I loved the character because of their strict adherence to morality and their steadfast desire to be successful at all costs. And I'm, and I was so identified with Brienne. Brienne is like, when you say the archetypical archetypical 
Sorry. When she's <laughs> yeah. a standard hero, she is in many ways, and this is going to sound really silly, she's like the Captain America of Westeros. She totally is. Yeah, I, I love that. And I'm getting kind of warm fuzzies thinking about it. But I do think, and I don't know if this is going too far, but I do think there is a part of that that is gendered, right? So knowing what she has been through growing up, knowing that her aspirations are at odds with the hand that she has been dealt, uh, has provided her with an extra level of sensitivity, uh, an extra level of uh, intuition into the uh, the world that she is uh, experiencing. And because of that, she can form these incredible bonds with people like Catelyn Stark, even Jamie Lannister and Sansa eventually. And I think that's really helped her to uh, to get where she is today. Absolutely. So quick recap. Now that we have... Brienne as the optimistic deontology and Jamie as the cynical existentialism. Let's mine how their interactions work, what those mean, and what the show and the books are playing with. And I'd like to introduce the idea that they're using a literary device that, as far as I know, really first started in um, Charles Dickens and Great Expectations. Or no, I'm sorry, A Tale of Two Cities. Okay. In the phenomenon of doubling. Oh, okay. Having two characters who are the same but different. So pieces of evidence here. They are both Jamie and Brienne. They're both great warriors, some of the greatest warriors out there and some of the most feared warriors out there. One. Two, they're both high-born and from noble families. Three, they are both called Kingslayers behind their back. Well, Brienne behind her back, but Jamie to his face. Yeah. Wherein Jamie actually killed his king and Brienne is accused of killing the king. Um, they are both made an oath to Catelyn Stark that they want to fulfill and keep. And within their proximity, the way the world smashes them together, they both have to learn from each other in order to get to the next phase of their journey. For Jamie. He needs to confess his murder of King Eris and why he did it so that we, the audience and Brienne can start to look at him and redeem him, which allows him to get to the point where he can eventually leave Cersei and leave Cersei behind. And for Brienne, she needs to get torn down and see the darkness and cynicism of the world so that she can double down on the way on her chivalric sense of duty that can get her then to Sansa Stark. Yeah. They play off of each other beautifully and perfectly. When they first meet, Bran despises him as the Kingslayer, thinks of him as a piece of trash, and is just simply trying to get Jamie to King's Landing because that's what Caitlin Stark asked her to do. Jamie is more than willing to play into that role and to play into that stereotype and the entire time is mocking her, is making fun of her in his very Jamie Lannisterian way. It starts like a buddy road comedy that is just rife with sexual harassment. It's like, well, aren't we an odd couple? And he's just constantly sort of negging at her. And one of the central themes of Game of Thrones, in particular through season one and six, is that travel is dangerous because the world is hostile and threatening. Right. And while you're getting from point A to point B, things will happen to you. There's no telling who's in the woods. And this happens when they meet the Boltons and get taken captive. And this is the transitional piece that ultimately, A, 
leads to Jamie doing his first noble act for us as the audience that we've ever seen, in which he stops Bolton's men from raping Brienne. Yeah. And I remember seeing that, reading that, thinking, why does Jamie Lannister give a rat's ass right. if this character does or doesn't get raped? Because we have seen we have seen him do atrocious things when he thought he was just a little bit threatened. We've seen him try to murder Bran while having an incestuous relationship. And at this point in the show, we're pretty certain that the Lannisters conspired to kill Lord Aaron. Yeah. Which started this whole bloody yeah. mess. We're re- pretty certain that Jamie Lannister is in on this deep conspiracy that created this whole, which turned out not to be true. I know, right? But we totally believe that he is a like deep conspirator to murder the hand of the king, which brought Stark to King's Landing. So like, he's totally an asshole. He's like the fucking asshole he's like of the, the show. Asshole of Westeros. There's no redeeming quality to Jamie Lannister until this point. Right. Everything is shit. Everything is him being a dick. He fucking kills his cousin to try to escape jail. Yeah. Right? It's horrible. He tricks the cousin into getting close to him so he can snap his neck. Oh my God. And escape. It's so awful. It's repulsive. And then suddenly he helps protect the maidenhead of Brienne. Another way that they're doubling in that Jamie is supposed to not have sex because of his oath to the King's Guard. And Brienne is actually the only maid on the show not named Arya. Which is very important. Yes which we will get to later. And then this leads directly to Jamie losing the hand. Jamie loses the hand and Brienne is there on the road supporting him, trying to help him, trying to coach him through this. She's the one that gives him that tough lesson that, hey, you're a Lannister, you've never had it tough, you lost a hand. At the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. You're still alive. Buck up, son. Just going to point out here that Jamie says, I was that hand because losing that hand means losing his sword hand, which means he can no longer be the knight that he was. And if he's not that, then he's just a shit for honor Kingslayer. Absolutely. Because if he's not a great warrior who can kill anyone he wants, then who the fuck is he? He's just a man with no honor. Exactly. There is also a connection that you can read in Martin and in the show between body mutilation and a character arc. Yes. Many characters have this from Tyrion getting his sword, his face almost sorted off to Daenerys uh, having a stillborn and becoming barren, to in the books, Bran gets a part of her face ripped off, um, and on and on and on. And Jamie losing his sword hand, losing his power, being symbolically castrated is the start to his redemption. Yes, absolutely. It's like once we remove that, uh, that sort of veneer from him, once we remove the fact that he has to uphold the sort of golden knight, the golden lion uh, aspect of his personality, we can start to actually understand who he is. We can break him apart and start to see him take an upward climb. The most important, I would say, crossroads for these two characters is the Hall bath scene. Absolutely. Should we spend a little bit of time breaking it down? Let's break it down. Do you want to take the lead? Yeah, sure. I shall follow. So this scene starts with Brienne in the bath, scrubbing herself almost raw. Uh, Jamie comes in, says, stop scrubbing so hard you'll take the skin clean off, and then undresses and climbs into the same tub as Brienne, even though there's another one available. So he's intruding on her space immediately. First thing he does 
is say, don't worry, I'm not interested. So he says, I'm not attracted to you. Then immediately goes into, you're supposed to get me to King's Landing in one piece. You're not doing so well. So he insults her ability to do her nightly job. And then he says, no wonder Renly died, insulting her devotion. So he has broken down and insulted every aspect of her that he can possibly imagine. Brienne stands up, revealing her entire naked body to this man, towers over him, and Jamie suddenly falters. He starts to apologize. He says something like, I'm sorry, that was unworthy. And he admits that she has been better to him. She has protected him better than anyone. She thinks he's mocking her because everyone else has to this point, even him. And he starts to actually open up to her, saying, no, I'm apologizing. And that's when the confession begins. And then he also says, let's have a truce. To yeah, which Brian, I don't want to fight anymore. Brian replies, to have a truce, there has to be trust. And then he looks at her and goes, I trust you. And that's when she sits down. Yeah. And when she sits down, she gives him this look of disgust that he recognizes and says that I've seen this look before. I've been seeing it for 17 years. And then the confession where we find out that him killing the Mad King was not a Lannisterian conspiracy orchestrated between him and his father to overthrow the Mad King. It was rather... Jamie Lannister wanting to prevent the Mad King and a pyromancer from burning the city to the fucking ground. He saw that he had two impossible choices, which is help the king burn the city to the ground and kill my father or save all of these lives with one stroke of his sword. And break my oath at the same time. And forever be branded a Kingslayer, to which when Brienne replies, if this is true... Why have you not told anyone? And he has a very easy and simple and understandable reply. Ned Stark was the first to found him with his sword still wet with Eris blood, and he saw the judgment. And what we have seen from Jamie henceforth is him living under the shadow of that judgment and being the horrible thing people believe him to be. This is another theme we see of Martin all over the place, in particular with Tyrion, with yeah. Cersei, with all and the Lannisters, John, yeah. John acting in the way that they're expected to act. And Be- Melisandre, like Melis- we talked about last week. Melisandre, it goes on and on. Shireen Baratheon yeah. uh, to Stannis, like everyone. It's like, if I'm going to be branded this way, I might as well wear it like armor. Absolutely. To quote Tyrion. Yep. And no one can use it against you. Well, if everyone's going to whisper around my back that I'm a Kingslayer with no honor... I'm going to be the most honorless fuck that ever was. And we see this confession and he ends with saying, by what right does the wolf judge the lion? Oh, such a good line. And he starts to faint as if the weight of the the, the confession itself is collapsing. And then she goes, help the Kingslayer to which he, the scene ends. Jamie, my My name is Jamie. I'm going to throw a huge boomerang at you because this literally didn't occur to me until this moment as we were recounting this scene because I've always gotten stuck when Brienne says, why didn't you ever tell anyone? If that's true, why didn't you ever tell anyone? I've always been like, why would she ask that? I wouldn't ask that if I were hearing that confession. 
And then it occurred to me that this is kind of a role reversal. Um, in the past couple of years, a lot of women have come to, have come forward and said these men sexually assaulted me or sexually abused or harassed me. And the outcry from the void has been, why didn't you ever tell anyone? Uh, and so I'm just having kind of a an interesting moment where I'm equating those two. Uh, Jamie actually Whoa. saying, do you think Ned Stark wanted to hear my story? It sounds very similar to uh, a lot of women who have been put into horrible situations being like, no one was going to listen to me, so why would I have come forward? I'm Whoa. sorry to throw that at you just in the moment, but it just occurred to me for the first time. Wow. Yeah. There is a thread here that I think connects, and there is a through line in that the weight of expectation of who we're supposed to be by virtue of our gender, our position, our oaths, our jobs, whatever those things are that these big ideas that we use to determine who our identity is, the weight and the pressure of that for all is immense, highborn and low. And when your behavior does not conform with the expectation, there will always be those that say, just do the expectation. Right. You know, and sometimes in a Jean-Paul Sartre existential way, we cannot conform to that expectation and we must make a choice outside of that. Brienne does this in her choice to become a warrior. Jamie does this in his choice to kill King Eris. And they both have to deal with the fallout from that. And in that way, you're absolutely right. It echoes in our own world to victims of abuse who come forward and don't get doubt and get doubted and get disbelieved and their honor is questioned and whether or not they're good people or not gets questioned. So much so that people would rather remain silent about the crimes they've been a victim right. of than accuse the people who have harmed them. I absolutely the systems that have harmed them. Yeah. I absolutely agree that there is a interesting parallel there. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a gender non-conforming character in Brienne is asking that question to Jamie, who's the much more conventional gender conforming one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And who is clearly in the position of the most privilege. I think it's an interesting role reversal. It really is. So thank you for entertaining that as that came to me just in the moment. Brilliant. Um, obviously this scene is going to provide us with some really beautiful symbolic imagery. Uh, they are in a bath. So as Jamie is giving this confession is getting this off his chest for Presumably the first and only time uh, he is also being literally cleansed after becoming incredibly filthy on this journey to Harrenhal. So as he is scrubbing the filth from his skin, he is also lifting the weight that has been sort of holding him down and affecting uh, his persona. Um, what I think is also fascinating about the imagery in this scene is that uh, Jamie, who is one of the most attractive people on the show and who you know women look at and swoon, is portrayed as extremely ugly, I think. Uh, he, he obviously is very grimy in his face. His hair is kind of scraggly and wet, and his jaw seems to be jutting out, and he's making he's pulling these faces 
And Brienne, who is constantly remarked on for her unattractiveness, even though it's Gwendolyn Christie and she's a babe, uh, is almost glowing. Uh, the light on her is so beautiful. She is so pristine. She is so immaculate. And she is just emitting this glow uh, so that the difference physically between the two of them comes to uh, reflect the difference in their uh, their consciousnesses or their consciences. Um, and as this is being sort of shed from Jamie's uh, from Jamie's chest, she doesn't get any grimier, right? She remains as pristine as she is, but he starts to uh, clear up as well. So they are making each other better in this way. Totally. I also hearken back to the Lazarus pits, which are steamy mm. hot pits from the 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 Bible. Well, the Lazarus pit is from Batman, Batman <laughs> but Lazarus used you know dunked people into a pool and they could come back to life to regenerate and rejuvenate. So I feel like they're in the rejuvenating bath yeah. where they are cleansing and they are both coming back cleaner and more whole and healthier. And in the next scene that we see Jamie, he's already healthier after that bath. He's already cleaner. And when he is on his way back to King's Landing, he chooses another choice he makes to turn around and make sure Brienne comes yeah. with him. Yeah. And he makes the choice to do something altruistically, something out of honor, something not cynical. And something not easy. And something complex at great personal risk. I mean, he jumps into the fucking bear pit with her. Yeah. Just yeah. to save her. And this is where we see Jamie on his redemption. This is what gets us to season seven, where Jamie can turn away from Cersei and decide that he's going to fight for the living rather than fight for love. Because his entire fight, his entire modus operandi has been to protect his sister at all costs and protect their love at all costs. And he finally got to the point where he can abandon that. Where he has realized that Cersei is poison and that every time he gets close to Cersei, he backslides on his redemption arc. Uh, and then every time he confronts Brienne again, he recognizes that he has been backsliding on his redemption arc. Uh, I think that's really important that they represent these two poles uh, in the way that we have said that Jamie and Brienne represent two opposites. Uh, Jamie or Brienne and Cersei represent two poles that Jamie himself is being tugged between. Absolutely. And he needs to be sliding on the Brienne scale, if that makes sense. It does. And he will always, I think, represent a cynical existentialism. Absolutely. Because his core philosophy actually hasn't shifted. No. But instead of making the choice to be a bastard, he wants to make the choice to do more honorable things in the example of Brienne, which is not to say that Brienne's story simply serves Jamie's because no. it's pretty awesome on her own. I will say when they part and then when Brienne finally gets vengeance on Sansa or pardon me on Stannis and then is now united with Stan with Sansa, there hasn't been that much interesting stuff thinking like late season six, early seasons and most of season seven with Brienne. She's been more or less just kind of there. Yeah, I think the show doesn't really know what to do with her now that she has accomplished this one objective. And I, I am hoping for 
uh, season eight to really show her in, in the way that she shines. Because I know um, she's going to kill lots of, of undead with her Valerian sword Oathkeeper. So like, I know that's going to happen, but I want to see some more character stuff from her in season I eight. I absolutely do too. Because she shines when she's in really, really tough crossroads and really tough adversity and she doubles down on being chivalrous and being honorable. Like that's when she really shines. And I'd like to see her in the final season, a few more scenarios like that. Me too. So I would love if, if it's okay with you, um, as you know, I am obsessed with the legend of King Arthur Mm -hmm. and uh, we have spent some time with Arthur in the last couple of weeks and even tied him into uh, Game of Thrones with our Jorah Mormont podcast was sort of kicked off this entire obsession with uh, medieval British literature in our podcast. Um, but I would love to uh, draw a few connections from the Arthurian legend to the relationship that we're talking about today. Um, so in our Jorah podcast, I sort of prefaced the fact that I was going to introduce Lancelot as a uh, corollary to Jorah with saying, hey, there's a probably more literal comparison to Lancelot in Jamie Lannister. And there is. Uh, there are some high-level uh, identifiers of Lancelot that are shared by Jamie. He is one of the greatest knights in the land, if not the greatest. Um, he is handsome and desired by many women. He is in an adulterous relationship with the queen and is cuckolding the king. Uh, She just happens to be his sister in this version of the tale. But other than that, Jamie doesn't really look like Lancelot in terms of his inner self. That is until he meets Brienne, until he is set off on this redemption arc. Because, as we know, the great downfall of Lancelot is his relationship with the queen. It's what tears apart uh, Camelot and King Arthur's court. And it is what besmirches the theretofore unbesmirched honor. Uh, but I'm going to draw another parallel to another of Arthur's knights in Brienne, who has a very interesting relationship with Lancelot, and that's Galahad. So in the stories, in the Arthurian legend, Galahad is a relatively late addition. He is included in the Vulgate cycle, which we talked about as the 13th century French epic that is a bunch of uh, disparate authors sort of stitching together the entire Arthurian legend, and it first introduces the like holy grail uh, quest where it's no longer just a serving dish, it's the cup that Christ drank from at the Last Supper or the cup that caught Christ's blood on the crucifix. Galahad is introduced as the, uh, the prophesied knight who will achieve the grail. At Arthur's table, the round table, there is an empty seat known as the Siege Perilous that is a seat that Merlin has enchanted to remain empty until the knight who's destined to achieve the grail will come to sit in it. And it's tested a few times, always fatal to those who sit in it who are not the prophesied knight. Galahad is born uh, of Elaine of Corbenic who is the daughter of the Fisher King, who we've talked about before, uh, who slept with Lancelot under the guise of Guinevere. So he thought he was having sex with Guinevere, had sex with this woman, Elaine, 
and she conceived Galahad. That's not cool, bro. Yeah, Arthurian legend is weird. It's not cool. So Galahad is born and immediately emerges as this incredibly saint-like, pure, and just perfect knight. So perfect that he's almost a little bit boring. And he comes to Arthur's court once he comes of age, sits in the siege perilous, and they say, this is the knight who will achieve the grail. And then Arthur says, one more test. And he takes Galahad to uh, enact another pretty familiar motif of the Arthurian legend and pull a magical sword from a stone. And Galahad does it with ease. And they say, yes, this is the greatest knight who has ever lived. And now Lancelot, who previously was the greatest knight who had ever lived, has given birth to a much greater, much holier, much more perfect, much more chaste knight. And that's why I've said that it's important that Brienne remains a maid. Uh, that this connection to Galahad as the knight who is so saintly and so pure and so virginal that he can achieve the grail, uh, that these two characters sort of become one. And in the presence of Jamie or the analog of Lancelot, they become something to aspire to, even as a younger generation. They become someone who embodies the code of chivalry, someone who always makes the right decision, who always filters their decision through that code and still understands everything about the world and understands that there are evils. That is someone to aspire to and someone who can elevate everyone. A rising tide raises all boats. I love that. I think that is very interesting. Can I ask if a question of you in this analysis? Would you mind? Sure. Do you think this connection between Lancelot and Jamie and Galahad and Brienne, is this something that you have read into? Or do you think there's a chance that it is written as such? I do think it's intentional. I do absolutely believe that Martin is very familiar with the Arthurian legend, and I do think his connection of Brienne to Galahad is intentional. Uh, part of that is because this is the only character, the only main character at this point who still remains a virgin uh, and can still be destined to achieve great things because of that. Not at all slut-shaming here. Uh, this is a medieval story. But... If we look at, I think, season five of Game of Thrones and definitely the fourth book, Brienne spends much of her time wandering around the Riverlands trying to find Sansa and Arya Stark, which deeply echoes the quest for the Grail, which feels sort of like a meandering uh, sort of chapter in the, uh, the Knights' lives, but it's incredibly important in forming their, uh, their inner selves. So Brienne is wandering through the Wastelands, which is a, a familiar Arthurian um, motif on the Grail Quest, trying to find her Holy Grail in Sansa. And I do think even that moment on the show of her bidding Sansa to light a candle in the window if she needs her echoes the Grail epic as well. When we see Percival or Galahad uh, seeing a vision of the Grail in a castle, uh, and I think once she has achieved Sansa, that's why the show doesn't know what to do with her. It's because once the knight has found the Holy Grail, 
once Galahad finds what? the Holy Grail in what? the Arthurian epic, he gets taken up to heaven. What's next? What's left to do? We so do I'm get excited a, to see what happens next. Yeah, I mean, we do get a great Brienne Arya uh, combat scene. You know, the that's the, true. The only person who can contend with Brienne is Arya, which is fantastic. She does seem a little freaked out by Arya, but I think that in the future, that really, if they make it through the Battle of Winterfell, I think that relationship will be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, Arya's gonna die, but that's a whole. Side yeah, please. Thing. Oh my god. All right. Do you have any final thoughts here? Um, I. Do you? <laughs> sure. I will. I will kick off a conclusion, sort of to this thesis that at least I have. In the great chaos and unpredictability of what it means to be traveling through Westeros. We can read that as a metaphor through the great chaos and unpredictability of what it means to be alive in the modern era. There are lessons that we can learn and extrapolate from both Brienne and both Jamie. We will invariably face difficult and complex decisions in which the, the outcome is not guaranteed and whether or not we're doing the right or wrong thing is not guaranteed. And often those decisions will be thrust upon us from external circumstances and we'll have to make them quickly and there'll be no going back. That is Jamie. And those, those very things can make us cynical and they can harden our hearts and we can feel completely trapped under the consequence of those decisions. And that is a real pain that everyone that's alive today must contend with. Conversely, we may view ourselves and feel as if we are one thing in this world in which the world is telling us we are something else. And uh, that can be read as a metaphor also for modernity and the stresses of being alive today when you feel that you are a poet, but the world turns you into a factory worker. When you feel that you are a warrior and the world calls you a lady, whatever those stresses are, those can be completely paralyzing and very difficult and painful. And what we learn, at least what I learn from the study of these two characters and the relationship between them is that between both of those poles, there is a middle. And in that middle is a, is a space that can give us some comfort and guidance. We can't be naive, but we can't be cynical. We can't be uh, so devoted to our own selfish desires that we are willing to murder a child um, in order to protect our forbidden love, at the same time, we can't be too overly fanatically dedicated to an ideal that's not really there. And the relationship between Brienne and between Jamie is one of the most instructive, is one of the most aspirational in a dark, twisted, fucked up narrative. There is hope, and that hope is that we will all find, whether we're more of a Jamie or more of a Brienne, maybe we can find the other pole. And from that, we can be a little more grounded, we can be a little more centered, and we have a stronger chance to live the good and happy life. In this episode, we talked about one character who is defined by the oath that he broke. And we talked about one character who is defined by the oaths that she kept. We can't always be defined by our relationships to our oaths, but we can always learn from each other. And if our oaths are motivated by a true connection to another human being on this plane, 
they are probably going to be more powerful than those that are abstract. And that's kind of what I have to say about these two characters. Beautiful. And you know, next week we'll probably go way out of medieval yeah. Game of Thrones. We've been here for a while. We've been here for a while. Oh, maybe we'll talk about like Spider-Man or something. Oh. Uh, you know, maybe. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. We haven't ever really talked about Spider-Man on this show, so maybe we will. But uh, until next time, guys, be motherfucking badass oath keepers. <laughs> But most importantly, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>